I'm Jessica Yellen, excited to be here with Beth Ford, CEO of Lando Lakes, to take a look at rural America. Beth, thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation. I heard Lando Lakes when I was asked to do this, and I thought, great butter. Thank you. Number one leading butter. Butter is back, people. Fat is healthy. But Let's just get there with that. You're much more than that. You're a $15 billion uh, a year revenue business. You're a farmer's collective. Give us an understanding of what Land O'Lakes Yeah, everybody knows our heritage dairy business, and Land O'Lakes was started about 100 years ago by Upper Midwest dairy farmers who tried to get power in the channel, get their sweet cream butter into population centers in the east. So they formed a cooperative. Today, we are a Fortune 200 uh, food production and agribusiness, but we retain a cooperative structure. We retain farmer ownership. We actually, um, that, that success that they had from forming a marketing cooperative translated into forming a supply cooperative. So we have Animal Feed, Purina is our brand for animal uh, feed and animal nutrition. And we also are in technology, Winfield Technologies, where we work with farmers um, on their land to enable sustainable production and um, optimize production. Um, over the long term. So we really do go from the farm. We have farmer ownership all the way to retail. So you, you, the farmers are your shareholders and a yeah. lot of the issues that are in the news these days really touch on your communities. You wrote an op-ed recently saying that um, the plight of American farmers is being ignored by most of America. You said as a country we aren't paying nearly enough attention. What aren't we paying enough attention to and what would you like this audience to know? Well first of all I think but, you know, I think of two or three things. When I get interviewed, and, and certainly over the past year, this interview has been related to tariffs and trade and trade arrangements. Trade is critically important for the profitability of the American farmer, um, the most efficient and productive farmer in the world. So trade is critical. That has been a net positive for exports. But over the last couple of years, obviously, trade and issues have been um, uh, pressuring. There's also been a long period of time where very low commodity prices were present. Um, and so the farmers haven't been making money. Uh, the average income for a farmer in uh, 2017 was $43,000. The median was minus 1,500. They have Say been that working. again. The median was minus 1,500. The average was $43,000. And so when I say this, in this particular op-ed I wrote, um, that also came at the time last year where we had just disastrous weather for a planting season in the spring. And farming is an outdoor sport, and weather has, a, uh, has uh, an impact. And so many farmers couldn't get planted. And so now we've got banks de-risking their portfolio against operating loans. We've got um, trade issues, we have bad weather, and so it's been a particularly fraught period of time. Stepping over to your last comment on rural communities, recognize that farmers are sitting around communities rural, in rural America. This isn't just a Midwest piece, by the way. There are rural areas in every state in the country. And so those, com those communities rely on the profitability of the American farmer and other industries. And so what's happening is that because the farmers haven't been making money, they're not going to the diner, they're not going to the hardware store, they lose their grocery store, there's a shortage of 40,000 doctors in rural America, three of four, three of four farmers or farm workers have been directly impacted by the opioid crisis. Directly impacted by the opioid crisis. There's a lack of technology in these communities. Um, there is rural poverty. One in four children are living in poverty in rural America. There's a homelessness issue. So when I speak to this, I remind people it doesn't stop just at the farm. 
And this strength of our food production system has been a key lever for our national security. And I think sometimes, I've lived in cities in uh, my, my entire adult life, we forget the shared destiny between rural and urban areas and why we should want investment in these communities. It's absolutely a pillar of our strength and critically important um, to deal with rural poverty. I'm going to come back to that because I've heard you say that rural America is the new inner city. It is the new but inner city. Let's, let's address first some of the issues that are in the news. You say that we spend too much time talking about tariffs when we talk to you, but I have to ask. The trade war with China has been devastating to some American farmers. The White House has announced a new deal. They say that uh, China will now increase its what is purchasing from the U.S. to 40 billion. That's more than double what it used to be. So is this plausible? How has this announcement already impacted farmers or has it? Well, we didn't see the market move yet. We did not. We have not seen the market move and we haven't seen goods start to flow at the same, at that rate. Now that's because I'm certain that they pre-bought the spring. They probably pre-bought a lot of the, the um, items they needed um, as we step into the spring. Reminder that that period of time when we were talking about the 17 to 20 billion, which is what it had been in 2017 or so at the peak, it was a lot of soybean production going from the Midwest, probably 60% of beans were being shipped into China, and that was to support animal feed for the hog population in China. China has had um, uh, African swine flu, which has impacted the hog population, and over half of the hog population had to be destroyed. So they're gonna have to repurpose or repopulate the hog population. So go to your question, um, or do we see this as possible? Well, they weren't defined on saying you have to do this many, this much in terms of soybean purchase, this much in terms of dairy, this much in terms of poultry. They will have any variety of um, access to poultry, to swine, to um, soybeans, to corn, to ethanol, and so we'll see. We have yet to see goods start to move. We haven't seen the market move, so I haven't seen the corn price or the bean price. In fact, it's coming under support levels now, $9 or so a bushel for beans. And so I haven't seen goods start to move yet, um, but I know that there is a focus on saying we're going to go ahead and, and see goods move. Is there a sense of relief? I mean, one of the things I've read and heard is that China created new relationships. You know, the American farmer worked hard to get these relationships, or so they're selling into China, and now they're buying from Brazil. Like, are they going to break that deal and start buying from the I US? think that's the question. I mean, all of us in business, I mean, just human nature, you have a relationship, and then that relationship goes through bumps, it's severed, and so now there are other supply um, uh, paths in the marketplace. We're gonna see. Those relationships were strong, um, we've seen Chinese delegations in different farm states. We're, we're hopeful. Uh, you know, what, what I would say is that farmers don't want handouts. I don't know any farmer who wants a handout. You're talking about the subsidies. They want no subsidies. They want a, a competitive marketplace. They want to compete. Um, and so uh, I would say my bet is on the resilience of the American farmer in terms of reconnecting that relationship to get goods moving. I feel like I can't talk about doing business with China without asking about coronavirus. Is there any way in which this virus will impact the farmers in the U.S.? Well, I mean, you, cer you certainly see um, goods, you see businesses starting to shut down in China, um, uh, transit um, and uh, flow of goods is starting to, um, to uh, taper off. I don't know that any of us know right. what's going to happen, and I'm not sure we have the clear picture yet. 
I, I would guess we probably don't. Right. Um, none, none of that operating environment, that disruption in an operating environment is favorable for any industry. Right. It, not forget agriculture, I could, I could go you know, front to back in any industry. And, and you know, China's a huge, um, huge economy. So we're gonna see, um, we're, we're trying to look and, and make sure our folks on the ground um, understand yeah. what's happening. We're all waiting to see with coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, let's talk quickly about the trade agreement the president signed this week and then move on to some ag specific things. Okay. Uh, he made a deal with China, uh, sorry, with Mexico, a new trade agreement. And I understand, I didn't realize this till we spoke earlier. The Mex Mexico is our biggest market for dairy and corn? It, dairy and corn. Um, it's the number one dairy market, the number one corn market for exports. It's a number three cattle market for Mexico. Mexico is a huge trade partner, and that has been advantageous. I think the start of NAFTA, there was probably $8 billion in exports for agriculture, and it moved up to over $40 billion during the process of NAFTA. Canada is an important market as well, um, and dairy, um, really, we've got more dairy access. It's not huge into to Canada. Really, it leveled the playing field for some price support they were offering farmers in um, dairy in uh, Canada. So it's some relief. Yeah, it was distorting yeah. the marketplace. There is some relief. Listen, it, getting trade arrangements, understanding the certainty, stabilizing the operating environment, that's great. Now, if we could just get some decent weather, that would, right. be, that would be helpful. Let's talk about a topic that's near and dear to this audience's heart, which is ag tech. Mm -hmm. When I was doing my research, I learned that there are facial recognition programs for cows. Right. Why? What are some <laughs> of the other fabulous ag tech realities? Well, we've, we've really, with our Wenthal technology business, we use satellite technology, we use data silos, predictive models, all of the things that you know the businesses use, that the facial recognition piece was because we can use that capability to look and say, what should a cow's weight be? What is their structure? Do we see an issue in terms of nutrition for that cow? And so you can look across a herd and do a match versus a baseline. And then from that, we know, hey, from a priority perspective, you should be paying attention here. We also are able to track. Like this instance, cow's too fat, it needs to eat less? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I want to have that used on my myself or my family, but yes, um, that is what we do. So we use that, or we look at the nutritional component, the muscle mass, you know, what should the, the cow be, um, be uh, you know, supported with. Do you also use tech to decide what should be grown where or how much nutrients should be put into what part of the soil? It's yeah, and that's, I think, a real, it, it's very important for the way we think of sustainable food production in the future. So we're using analytics, we're using data. We capture data at the, you know, the very small level in each field, and every field is not the same. And so you don't wanna over apply um, either seeds or crop protection items or fertilizer in areas that aren't fertile. That's just a waste of money, it's not good for the environment. Um, so we use um, our satellite technology, our predictive models that allow us to see what the application should be um, in each part of a field. And um, we then partner with our agronomist, right with the farmer, to um, enable more sustainable and cost-effective, uh, profitable production um, for the long term. You've mentioned sustainability a few times now, mm -hmm. and this is obviously a focus for you and your farmers. Uh, one example I, I read about was uh, here in California, an effort you're working on. I think I'll get this right. It's the poop to pipeline? Poop to pipeline. <laughs> Tell us about it's that. clever. Um, 
So here in California, you have one of the biggest dairy producing states in the country, here in California, in the Central Valley. In fact, a lot of our farmers, our producers, are here in the Central Valley. And so at the same time, the, the state government here was um, requiring a reduction in methane for greenhouse gas emission and, and um, really focused on climate. Will you just explain the methane-dairy connection in case people don't know? Methane gas from a, farm, from a cow and that, you know, capture what is the issue and, and again, that, um, that greenhouse gas emission that is causing part of the problem. So cows cause greenhouse gas emissions. One of the, they're one of the drivers. The number one is, of course, what we all know. It's the use of fossil fuels and transportation and things like that. But animal production and methane, the, the, the uh, government here was um, requiring and requesting a reduction of 40% for methane by, say, 2023. So what was productive about that conversation, again, I think of farmers as the original environmentalists. They have everything at stake in terms of handing their land over and their profitability by improving their sustainable production. So we have a number of producers that have their herds up in the Central Valley near a pipeline. And what we did is we partnered with the state government here who had an allocation of funding. And at the same time, we allowed our farmers to take a loan against the equity they have in the business. And then they were able to get a, um, a digester, a methane digester, an anaerobic digester, and what happens is manure goes into a pit, it's separated, the solids are dried and used as fertilizer, organic food, fertilizer on the, on the land. The, the um, liquids are then, and the gas is then captured under a cover, and then that is cleaned, and so you have biogas, that investment from the state government uh, connected a gas skid to these digesters where it's collected, and that gas, that clean gas, is then piped down here to Los Angeles to run city buses. To and run other, city buses. To run city buses. It's biogas. It's, and we're partnering with uh, companies like Chevron and others to say, how do you market biogas? So, you know, so these are creative ways of the circular economy that allow us to take advantage of the things that are happening in the environment, but at the same time, make sure we're addressing um, different uh, concerns in climate. And does this exist already? Our city buses are running on gas, This is cow existing. We're investing in, in standing up these uh, digesters. It's here, uh, you know, because we have large size herds here, um, but we're doing this and uh, you know, working with, uh, and we're not the only company um, working um, on this as well. Okay. Also, other places. One of the um, realities of farming is the women are sometimes empowered in the farming community. Would you give us a snapshot of how many farms are run by women and how did they come to have this prominence? Well, you know, what's so interesting is far women have always been involved in farming, but women were often not on the title of the farm. You know, the largest landowner in Iowa for farmland is a widow. They own 60% of the farmland. And, you know, by the way, 96% of farms are still family owned. So this idea of the big industrial farm, maybe not in reality, farms do get bigger because people go out of business, they can't stand, or they don't, it's the same business, or the neighbor is going out and they don't have anybody to take over the farm so they sell it to somebody else who, um, who's there and who can, who can farm the land. Women have always been involved in farming. Around the world, women are huge in farming and it is a way they reinvest in their children and in their communities. They start up businesses. We have an NGO called Venture 37. We're paired with the Gates Foundation. We're, fu we're funded by USAID. We do work around the world, multiple projects, to help especially female farmers um, who, uh, who are maybe the, the breadwinner 
um, and the support for their communities and their families. So women have always been involved in agriculture, but when people think of farmers, they think of the male yeah. farmer in the pickup truck. And of course there are a lot of male farmers, but there are a lot of male-female couples and they're more prominent. And what we're trying to do, and since I took over as CEO about a year and a half ago, is really help people understand how integral uh, women are um, in farming and in agriculture. And people don't really understand that this is a great career for women and that uh, you know, women have been involved in uh, food production for forever. One third of farms are run in the US run by women? Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, circling back, mm -hmm. toward the top we talked about the rural America is the new inner city, mm -hmm. and a lot of the challenges farmers have faced. Some of it's natural disasters, but some of it's political. So I'd like to talk about politics for a moment. In, in our current climate, um, we know that there is this urban-rural divide in our politics and that the rural voter is a big part of the Trump success and Trump's engine. Um, I'm wondering, understanding that rural America is not a monolith, nor are farmers, and that you run a company, so you have to be careful. But um, is there any disillusionment among former Trump voters with what's happened in the last four, three plus years? You know, I, I wouldn't say, and I'm with uh, farmers quite a bit. Um, I don't know about disillusionment. Here's, here's what I would say. It has been a very difficult couple of years, um, multiple years. Uh, Farm income down, farmer suicides up, um, making no money. When I'm with farmers, they talk to me about the things that we all talk about. Our families, healthcare access, investment in schools for their children, medical care access. And what they're looking for in politics, because policy is critically important to agriculture, again, because of exports and tariffs and all these other things, um, what they're looking for in, a, in any politician, anybody, is support for and an understanding of broader issues. Do you care about them? Do you respect them? You know, I respect their hard work. I respect th them as human beings. So I don't know that it's a softening. I think what they're looking for in terms of connection with, um, with politicians is do you understand my issues? Will you help me make investment in these communities? Will you help me um, and my family the same way you think of the urban areas? And don't, don't just look past us. And is there a sense that they've gotten the attention they need and that the trade, is the trade war forgiven? I think, I, I, now this will seem simplistic, but I don't think it is. Um, 19% of the population lives in rural America and they comprise 44% of the military. When the President of the United States or when anybody else asks them to stand in the breach for a trade arrangement that over the long term will be healthier but are dealing with what uh, they believe and, and I think many industries would support this, that there's unfair trade um, uh, arrangements, um, that there's intellectual property theft, things like that, and when somebody says, we need you to stand in the breach, they will do that. They do the hard work. And that's why I say 19% of the population, 44% of the military is very similar to me. And at the same time, what they're looking for is an understanding that their communities and their families deserve um, and need investment. That's why I say rural America, the new inner city, and no fresh food access, no medical, that is, that is very problematic and we should all be concerned about that, not just people in rural areas. 
is there a Democratic candidate in the field that speaks most to rural America or is resonating among the farmers you deal with? Um, I haven't necessarily heard, boy, this is this person in the Democratic field is separating themselves. I certainly uh, obviously track policy statements from each of the candidates. We don't get involved in presidential elections. I want to be, I, we work with both Republicans and Democrats um, in DC. Um, but, and the, I, I do believe this is a time in, um, in the, the year where we start to hear more right. conversations about necessary investment. Do I see that somebody has separated themselves? I haven't seen that. Klobuchar seems like the obvious one since she's from Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And is she making a special effort to connect to farmers or not? I know you're from Minnesota. So. Yeah, I am. Well, I live there now. You live there. Yeah, I'm from Iowa. So, a little bit of both. A little corn. Yeah. And your mother is caucusing next week, yes? No? Well, yeah, she's 83. She's, she's looking forward to this whole thing in Iowa just being over with, frankly. She just wants to move on. Um, you know, uh, yeah, Senator Klobuchar, she's done very well in the state of Minnesota. She speaks to farmers. All of them are making an effort. You know, I, I'm a realist. You know, I say to our members, um, we're most interesting during the election cycle. Mm. And then folks move on. And I would advocate, and I, I, I appreciate you guys allowing me to be here, I would advocate we need to pay attention to this more than just during the election cycle and not politicize this. This is a national security issue in my view. This is a necessary investment for communities that deserve these investments. Can we just get specific on that? You're saying this is a necessary investment. Is there, I, you've said that it's not wired for broadband in rural America, broadband there's a lack is, of yeah. doctors. Is there a holistic policy solution you would like influencers to get behind? One, one enabler, because we can't solve all of these issues at the same time, but we know, all of us, a, a fundamental requirement is technology access. We should think of it like mail delivery and electricity. We should have a 1930s rural electric initiative. It should go across the country. It's a $150 billion problem, and to me, it is the first infrastructure investment that this administration, any administration, should support. Um, we're not just going to seed the geography, you know, that's in the middle or in the rural areas. And if a third or over a third don't have broadband, think of how, think of the, the pace of change technology is enabling at this moment. Not having access to data analytics technology, uh, that's just stunning to me. And so we, I've been pushing um, with my team in partnership, uh, my chief technology officer now, Teddy Bacelli, is leading the Commission on Rural Broadband for the FCC, because then you can take advantage of telemedicine, teleeducation, um, you know, there are so many other things that you could do um, with a supporting broadband uh, investment. I just saw today the administration and the FCC announced a $20 billion investment, and it's not that that's nothing, I mean, that's real money, but it's inadequate. It's inadequate, we know it, and then I, I'm constantly with governors and they're putting something 10 million in the budget or 20 million. I was here with Governor Newsom. And, you know, and it, it feels like we're in the couch looking for the quarters and the nickels, right? And that's not gonna get us there. It is gonna make us uncompetitive as a nation. We cannot just leave these communities behind. So to me, it's a fundamental policy issue. Um, I'm part of the business roundtable. I'm on their board. We're trying to, I'm trying to work with that telecom group or that technology group to say, is there a policy position we can have? Just to put a face on it, you said before that some of these people are working their farm from early in the morning 
and then after hours, they're driving their kids to McDonald's so their kids can do their homework on McDonald's Wi-Fi because they don't have Wi-Fi at home. That's right. So is there a person who's the champion of this? Is there somebody to support? Um, is, who's carrying this banner? Is it you? Well, I certainly speak about it a lot. I, would, it, I think it would um, lack uh, accuracy to say I'm the only one who speaks to it. Um, I think it's a, it's a, uh, I'm fortunate to have a position like this where I can go and advocate for this and it is a priority policy decision uh, that I believe needs to be made. I've heard a lot of different areas, uh, even in the government, um, the Secretary of Ag has been talking about this, the FTC, we had Chairman Pai at our board meeting. But what I'm trying to do is humanize this. And you're, thank you for using that example. You know, I used that example, I was speaking under a tent in the cornfield in Indiana, and I said, you know, I, you guys are used to doing this, like you're wiring up your, you know, your, um, your phone, and you're figuring out a way so that you can get this in your cornfield so that you can be efficient as farmers. And it's not complaining to say this isn't adequate. It's not complaining to ask for investment and request investment. And so I, I think it's fortunate to be in a position to, to push this issue and to, to give voice to it. We, we need to make people aware. Finally, I want to ask a little bit about you mm -hmm. and your biography. It is rare for a woman to be in your position running such a large um, company. It is even more rare to find a woman who's openly gay in that position. In fact, you're the one. That's it. So, And of one. <laughs> How, how has this been a challenge for you, or how have you found it not at all challenging? What lessons can you share with us about being unusual in a position? Yeah. Um, well, f first of all, um, it's just my life, so I don't really think of it as unique or interesting or, or different. So, uh, you know, but I appreciate a couple of things. Now, I, I don't want to be just kind of pushing it aside. I think that this is a moment I have heard from so many people that. Um, right when this was announced that I was the CEO and understand that this is, you know, this is, was, was at the time an all-male board, 28 board members. All men. All men. Chose you. Mm-hmm. Um, I had them just where I wanted them. <laughs> Give us a lesson. That's right. Um, you know, what, what I would say is, you know, results matter and they, I feel connected to them um, and that has been beneficial. M more importantly, for the community, any time I think you could bring your authentic self to work, it's really critically important. And then I've heard from so many parents who say thank you because my, you know, whether it's my, my child has come out to me or, um, you know, this gives us hope. It's, I think it's a hopeful moment. You know, one, I've, I've mentioned the, the families who've written me, my daughter has come out to me, I can have a conversation with her about her life. But I've had, I've had so many times that it's so emotional where I can tell. I, I, there was a man who was standing next to me, and I said, I was waiting to come up, and there was a speaker, and I said, oh, let me introduce myself. My name is Beth Ford, and he said, oh, I know who you are. I said, oh, okay. And he said, you know, this is a big man, and he's probably in his 60s, and he started to shake, and he, he started to get teary, and I knew, and I just went up next to him, and I said, it's okay. And he said, my, my son, my son is gay. And I said, he's lucky to have a dad like you. And he said, I'm so proud of you and I'm so proud of your board. These moments, you know, this is a privilege. It's a privilege that you would find interest to allow me to come here to put voice for things, against things that I think are critically important. And if the fact that I was named CEO um, gives somebody some moment of hope, then that's, that's a bit of joy. 
that's a fortune. Beth Ford, thank you for being here today and for what you do. Thank you.